morning, and uh, thanks for being here with us this morning. We're going to just start off uh, uh, by just making uh, a little clarification of what Angelo said earlier. Uh, Pastor John's going to preach for the first time about God this morning. I hope that's not true. Uh, I hope I've done that before. Uh, I actually know what he, what he was really trying to say, but um, it, it was a little bit frightening for me. Uh, I'm missing out. Oh, kids, yeah, okay, sorry. He's, he's going, I'm like, I'm trying to get quieter. Kids, you are free to go if you'd like to go back to our uh, children's ministry back there. If you'd like to stay or your parents like for you to stay, you're welcome to stay as well. Uh, I always forget that. I always forget that. And then the small stampede happens. So. <laughs> oh, goodness. Who is, who is God? I mean, who is God? I mean, that's, that's the question that we want to answer this morning as we begin this series about what we believe. And, and what we believe uh, has a, a lot to do with uh, what, what we think, how we act, how we live our lives, how we treat ourselves, how we treat others. And, and defining who God is, uh, not just the God who we want him to be or who we hope he is or who we think he ought to be, but truly the God of the Bible. The God that the Bible speaks of, that he describes in great detail, the God who reveals himself through his word, the Bible, uh, to us. Who is this God? Each and every week in this series, you're going to see at the beginning of the, uh, the book, Believe, at the top heading of every chapter, there's going to be a key idea. Uh, and this week's key idea is, uh, is simply this. Uh, I believe the God of the Bible is the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so each and every week, I'm going to encourage you, we're going to have a different one of these up there every week, but I'm going to encourage you to just meditate on that phrase each and every week. Uh, because when you believe that the one true God, the God of the Bible, the one true God is holy within himself, and that he is the only one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that will actually dictate a lot of the other things that you believe, think, and act in are becoming. And so that's going to be our focus this morning as we kind of move forward with what we're doing. I want to begin... Uh, by telling you a little bit of a story. There was a young man in the office. He worked with many of his co-workers. He knew them pretty well, and they were talking about what they had done for the weekend. And, of course, this one had gone to a t-ball game with his kids, and this one had gone out to a party. The other one went to a wedding, and this young man said, well, I, I went to church with my family. And immediately after that, uh, the rest of the, the team members started chiding him a little bit, like, why are you wasting your time? Why are you spending so much time doing that? Then he noticed one of his co-workers got a little upset. And he looked at him and goes, how could you possibly believe in a God that allows sickness to be so widespread around this planet? How could you possibly believe in a God that allows children to be sick and even lose their lives? As the man continued to rant, one of the other co-workers leaned over to him and said he lost a child about a year ago. The man sat there and he just listened to him. And of course, the tone and the mood just completely changed in the office place. And as the man was hearing the challenges of how could you believe in a God, how could you really think that a God like that exists, the man didn't try to argue. He didn't try to win him over to his case. He didn't even try to defend himself, nor did he try to defend God. He just tried to find a little place of common ground with him, and he says, all I can tell you is what I believe. And I know that you're hurting, and I'm sorry for that, but I believe there is one true God. You know, it's interesting. God never asked us to come to his defense, particularly when it comes to proving his existence. God never said, go out there and demonstrate to everybody that I exist. In fact, if you were to look at any logical argument, what you'll always find is that it is never up to the believer to prove the existence of God. It is for the non-believer to prove that something that they don't believe in doesn't exist. It gets a little convoluted over time. But God himself never asked us to go out and, 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 and defend him for his existence. He did say, go out and defend me for my righteousness and my holiness. Tell people about who I am. But he also said to show them who I am as well. The Bible itself actually begins with the assumption of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is very clear to us. In the beginning, there was God. 
In the beginning, there was God. There's, there's an assumption there that God exists, not that we're going to prove of his, his existence or the rest of this book is going to go to some sort of logical argument for it, but God exists, and that's the assumption. And without that assumption that we claim is verifiable fact, the rest of the Bible actually is disputable and possibly not true. Now, just think about that just for a moment. If God does not exist, everything else in the Bible is up for consideration. It's up for argument. It's up for you to believe it or not to. And so as a Christian, our fundamental foundational belief is that God exists. And that because God exists, he began everything with his spoken word. He was in the beginning before we ever were. And if we start with that foundational truth, we can move on to some other things because what we see is the existence of God, even his spirit that hovered over the waters. Now we see God in one of the the two of the three persons that we describe him as, God the creator, God the spirit who hovered over the waters in Genesis 1. And then later on at the end of Genesis 1, let us create man in our own image, we see the picture of Jesus. And so we see God in those, that triune God in those three different places. And if you want more information about that, I'm going to encourage you to read the first chapter of the book this week. But God also went on to look at mankind and he says, you know, if I'm the one true God, man seems to be worshiping a lot of other things beside me. And so again, in Genesis chapter 20, verse 3, God gives us the Ten Commandments. And the first thing he says is, you shall have no other little g-gods before me. You see, God not only, only authorized his own existence, he also acknowledged that man sees other gods, little smaller gods all over the place. So he didn't say he was alone in that, but he, what he is saying is that he is the one true God. Now there's a difference there, because many of these other gods, I would actually say most of these other gods, we actually create on our own, and some are just demons. Some are just those fallen spirits who have rejected the one true God, who have begun to live their their eternity out by trying to confuse mankind away from the one true God, who have exchanged places of the one true God's places in our hearts for little g-gods, and they're ruling over us. Now, those types of gods don't actually get power until we give it to them. The one true God has the authoritative power, and we just acknowledge that. We don't give God any of the power that he already has. So when God says, you shall have no other gods before me in Genesis chapter 20, verse 3, we see that and he gives us the rest of the Ten Commandments because all the rest of the Ten Commandments that are broken into two different categories of how we treat God and how we treat one another all hinge upon him being the one true God. And so if he's not the one true God, again, the Bible is up for conversation. Psalm chapter 96, verse 4 says, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. So the psalmist here is telling us that that we may fear these these other little g-gods and we may serve these other little g-gods, but in the very end, it would be wise for us to go back to the one true God that I believe is the God of the Bible. And to do otherwise gets us into a lot of problems. The reason why I can say that with great confidence, if you ever read through the Psalms, a great bulk of those are saying, I did not acknowledge the one true God. This is what got me into this place. And now here I am trying to get myself out of this hole. And the only way I can do that is to go back to the one true God. Paul, actually, in the book of Acts, verse 17, he is going to Athens and he's preaching to all these different people. And all these, these, these heady people, these, these philosophers, they sit around all day long arguing about all these different gods and their existence. And Paul, seeing this, he actually goes to them and he says this. He stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Paul was not coming to insult these philosophers, these thinkers, these these people who were challenging the existence of all sorts of things. Instead, what he was saying is, I'm going to start where you're ending. 
You have acknowledged that there is an unknown God, that you don't know him, but he does exist. And here I am today to explain to you who he actually is. And I believe Paul was saying exactly what we said earlier, that the God of the Bible is the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And since you do not know that, I, would want, I want to share that with you today with the hopes. Paul did not go into Athens to try to defend God or try to argue his way into existence, but he tried to answer the question that they had so eloquently put on a tombstone out there that said the unknown God. Hey, do you know who he is? No, I do. I'd like to tell you about him. I'd like to tell you who he is. I'd like to describe to you how he has acted uh, with mankind throughout all of history. Would you like to hear this? The rest of Acts chapter 17 goes on to, to see part of that conversation where the people were really, really excited about what Paul had to say. They even asked him to come back and continue this conversation because it had struck a nerve somewhere. If you have your Bible with us this morning, though, I want to talk to you about the problem with when, when we cannot understand who this God is and when that lack of belief does not correlate with our actions and with our thinking and with our behaviors. And so if you would turn with me to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua is going to be in the first third of your Bible. Uh, Joshua was the, was the one who actually followed after Moses. So Moses takes all the people out of the promised land. He takes them to the edge of, of the river to go into to Canaan. He sends in 12 spies. Ten of them come back and say, we can't handle this. Joshua says, we can. We can take them. God says that this is our land. We can kill them all. They say, no, we can't do it. And so God says, here's what you're going to do. You'll wander around the wilderness for 40 years until all that generation has died off. And then Joshua was elevated to the leader of the Israelites. And the scripture tells us in Joshua that when Joshua got to the edge of the river, and when he walked across and all the people of Israel were on the other side of the Jordan River, they were called a nation for the very first time because the people of God had possessed the land that God had promised them. Joshua had his own problems, but what he did do is he showed where all the portions of the land of Israel were divided up into the 12 tribes. And God said, this is your inheritance. This is the promise I made to Abraham. This is the promise I made to Abraham. This is your inheritance. This is what you are to, to own and to manage and to take care of. This is what I've given to you. God had provided in a great many ways. And so in Joshua chapter 24, I want to read verses 1 through 15 with you this morning as we try to answer this question of who is God. Joshua 24, 1 through 15 begins this way. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges, and the officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham to the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of the Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. 
Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, the Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from the vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. There's a little boy who was notorious for making a mess in his room. And his mother would go up there and yell at him and tell him that he needed to clean his room and pick up this and put that away and everything else. And she knew that if she told him to do that and walked away an hour later, nothing would move. Not a thing. So then she'd go up there and she'd yell and scream at it a little bit more and the boy would yell back and there'd be tears and crying and there's punishment that's going to be hung over his head and she knew that if she walked out of that room, nothing was going to happen. Now she could go in there and she could pick up all the stuff with him or she can make him to pick all those things up but she knew that, that wouldn't be the lesson that he needed to learn. And as the two of them fought back and forth over what should have been a 10 or 15 minute cleanup of the room, four or five hours later, the room still wasn't clean. And so when dad finally got home and they sat down and had a conversation with the little boy and said, is it, is it that you don't understand how to clean your room? Is it you just don't want to? And the little boy just replied back, what's the use of cleaning this thing up? It's just going to get dirty again. Any of y'all ever had these conversations before? Thought maybe you had. The truth of the matter is that the little boy was more than capable of cleaning his room. The problem he was having was making a decision to listen to and obey and to do what his mother had asked him to do, to do something he didn't necessarily want to do but knew that needed to be done, to understand the provision that his mother and father had provided for him, and they were asking him but to merely just show a little respect for his room that they provide and all the things that they give him and just to follow their direction. I mean, do you ever have problem making decisions? I mean, you know the right thing to do. You have the ability to make those decisions, but deep down you just look and go, you know, I believe that's the right thing to do. I just don't want to. That's exactly where this little boy was, and that's exactly where the people were in Joshua's day and time. And so when Joshua read out or said all these things to the people like we just read a moment ago, he was telling them about this God who had delivered them from generation to generation to generation to generation. And the things they had done when he said, clean your room. Throw away all those false gods. Serve me only. I delivered you from this king. I delivered you from this famine. I delivered you from, from the, the slavery in Egypt. And all these things I have done for you, but yet you tell me I'm not good enough. So Joshua finally at the very end of that said, Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Many of the times we have decisions that we're supposed to make, and, and we don't want to make those decisions, but we know they're the right decisions, and especially when it comes to our belief in the one true God. And how we act in regarding to what we believe regarding God tells a lot to others about what we actually believe. Because you and I both know that things are better caught than taught. And many times actions absolutely speak louder than words. 
And so you may say that you love God, but when you act the way that you, you act, it doesn't demonstrate God at all. And many people look and say, there's nothing about what you have that I want. Go back to the story of the young man in the office and just understand for a moment that if the, if the one young man who went to church would have started yelling and screaming, just saying you're a hypocrite and you're going straight to hell and God doesn't really love you and you deserve for your child to die, he would have gotten nowhere in eternity, wouldn't he? He'd have been absolutely wrong for that. But the flesh would have spoke out and the emotions would have engaged and all this hollering and yelling and screaming would never have actually demonstrated who the one true God is to this man. But instead he found common ground with him. So when we find ourselves needing to make a decision, especially when someone calls us to this and says, you can make this decision or you can make that decision. But as for me and my household, I'm going to make the decision to, to trust God and to follow him because I believe he is the one true God, the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because I believe that to be true, I don't have to defend his existence, but I do have to know what he has done for me in my past and in my life and what he's doing for me now and what he wants to do for you as well. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Now, you might imagine that the people of that day were stirred a little bit. And what Joshua was just asking them more than anything else and telling them, today we must make a decision to choose God. We must make a choice to serve the one true God. Now, for many of us who have been in church for a long time, that doesn't sound like that's a very difficult choice. The problem is, is that when you balance your decisions versus your actions, they don't always match up, do they? They don't always mirror one another. Why would you make that decision if you believe this to be true? Unfortunately, we live now, as did Joshua in his, his time, that there were many a false gods amongst them. There were many a hypocrites amongst them as well. There were many a times that we live out of the flesh that we might actually believe that the one true God loves us and has provided for us and protects us and has taken us from a place of danger to a place of safety, uh, a place of famine to a place of, of, of all of our needs being met. We may believe all those things to be true, but our nature, our, our flesh really wants more than that because what we're trying to be satisfied in are all the other things that are not of God instead of being satisfied with the one true God, the one who satisfies our very souls. And so as Joshua went down this list, he started talking about how Abraham's father worshipped false gods, and then Abraham came to know the one true God. And then he talked about how Jacob and Esau and Isaac and all those two, they had opportunities. And when they got into Egypt, they were, they were worshipping all these false gods, and the Egyptians ruled over them. They got out of the place. And so my, my, my second thing for us to, to realize what, Jake, what Joshua was saying to us is this, is that we have to identify the false gods in our lives. Now, you may never really sat down and started thinking about that, but if you'll look at the rest of the Ten Commandments, you'll see that, that, that you shall have no other gods before me, and then you get down to idol worship. You shall not worship false gods. You shall not worship false idols. Do you have true, uh, one true God in your life, or do you have a lot of false gods in your life? Because what you believe about the one true God will identify some of those false gods. And if you're wondering what some of those false gods may be, here's a, a simple definition. Anything that consumes your time and influences your decisions might actually be a false god in your life. In our day and age where we just worship our children for absolutely everything, our kids may actually be a false god. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. The television that we watch, the books that we read, the places where we spend our money, you've heard all of these things before. Those may be false gods. Anything that gets our attention and our affections and influences the way we make decisions, particularly when those decisions do not honor and point towards the one true God, may actually be a false God for you. Imagine yourself amongst the people of, of, of Israel. You've just been given free land. You've been given cities you didn't build. You've been given vineyards that you didn't plant. You have all the meals and all the food and all the livestock and everything you could possibly imagine. And all you had to do for it was walk around the desert for 40 years. 
Somebody else did all those things. If you know anything about vineyards and olive groves, you know that you don't get a crop the first year when you plant those. That the best vines are, are, are decades, if not hundreds of years old. And that someone has dressed those vines and taken care of them. And just imagine that generation after generation after generation had done that and all of a sudden it is taken from them and given to somebody else who follows God. The reward on the earth for that. We have to put away our false gods. And the people were saying, you know what, Joshua, you got a point, man. What you said today, that was pretty inspiring. I really like what you had to say. That, that got me here, man. We're not going to worship false gods like our fathers did before us. But look what he says in verse 19 through 25. And Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. Big G. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he's been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. It is easy for us to say, yes, we'll do this. Yes, you moved me today. Yes, emotionally, man, you got me. Yes, you know what? I've been thinking a little bit about what you're saying. I do have some false gods that I, that I worship, that get the, the, the object of my affection and my time, that get more time than what the one true God, the God of the Bible, gets from me. And, and I want to do better. I want to be better. I, I want to make better decisions. I want to serve the one true God more and more. Uh, that sounds like a good idea. I think I want to do that. And that may last for a little while, and then you may find yourself kind of back in that rut, and sometimes those ruts are really easy to get back into because there's not some other changes that need to take place. If you'll notice what the people actually were saying to Joshua during this time is that a whole lot of that is that we'll serve God, which means that we'll, we'll, we'll adhere to his word and obey. And you cannot obey something you do not know. You cannot obey something you do not know. And so if you say that you're a person of God and that you're a person of the Bible, then I, the expectation is that you read the Bible and that the Bible actually speaks to you and that you adhere to what the Bible's teachings are because the Bible illustrates to us the one true God. But to say that I obey God and then I follow his rules and his statutes and then I go out and I live contrary to all those things, that's not just a lie to the rest of the world. That's not just a lie to God, but that's absolutely a lie to yourself. Many a time, people, particularly on other sides of the planet, they look at Christianity as a political status. And so when you go to other parts of the world and they say this part is 96% Muslim and 4% uh, Hindu, and that's 100%, they might say that they're 90 Muslim you know, four Hindu and six Christian. And by Christian, what that basically means is that it's political. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with what they actually believe. If you look at the United States, you'll find that most people in the United States believe in the existence of God, especially when it's convenient. Isn't that something? Do you believe God is real? Well, I did when I had a job. Do you believe that God really cares for you? Man, as long as my taxes go down. Do you believe that, 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 that the one true God of the Bible is the one who, who loves you and cares for you and provides for you? Man, as long as there's food in the pantry. Now, I know that's a little bit cynical, and, and, I, and I do apologize 
to an extent on that. But I think that describes a human nature, not just in our day and time, but since the very beginning. You see, what Joshua is doing here for his people is he's saying, I'm not trying to talk you into making this decision. I'm trying to persuade you to live according to what you said you're going to live to. In fact, he says, you can't serve a holy God and still act this way. Yes, we can. We can do it. We're going to stop acting that way and serve this holy God. As Joshua walked into the promised land and took over all that land, he set up a couple of, of monuments, a couple of places for the people to remember it's interesting that this conversation would take place in this town called Shechem because that was the same place that God took Abraham and he said, look out across this land. It's all going to be yours one day. And to your descendants, I'm going to give it to you. Jacob and his family also went to Shechem. They had a really bad time there, by the way, where his sister Dinah had a really terrible experience. You should read that in Genesis. You see, God takes us back to places sometimes, and he wants us to see over and over again that he never moved, that he didn't make any different decisions, that he didn't change the way he engages with us, and he's asking us to change the way we engage with him. And Joshua seems to be foreshadowing a little bit that you're going to make a deal with God today, but unfortunately, you're going to break that deal, and you're going to possess this land of Israel for a long time, but eventually that's going to change, and God's going to actually exile you from this promised land, not because he changed, but because you did not uphold your agreement to serve the one true God. And the reason why you didn't uphold your agreement to, to serve the one true God is because for whatever reason, you have two different systems of measurement for your Christian life. Now think about that for just a moment. You have two different systems of measurement for your Christian life. Here's a good example. I go to church, I read my Bible, I'm in a small group, I spend time with other Christians, but I also knock on wood every time I want something good to, to happen or something bad not to happen. Now, I know it seems kind of silly, but what does that wood have to do with anything? Well, it's an old pagan concept. It's an old tradition. I cross my fingers, you know, hoping for anything. I tell somebody, good luck. What's luck got to do with anything? Isn't there hard work, preparation? Doesn't God actually control things? You see where those little small nuances just in our language and some of those habits that we have? Now, just take that to a whole new level. Add that to some of those other things that you do where you hedge your bets a little bit on some of the other decisions that you need to make because you have two different systems of measurement. Let me give you a good example. Christopher Columbus set out to find the new world, India, he thought, the, space, the, the spice trade. And he plotted out where he thought he was going to go, and he used the Roman mile to do so. And that's why he ended up in the Bahamas because he used the Roman mile instead of the nautical mile. He had two different systems by which he should have been using the other, but instead he used the wrong one, and he ended up in the wrong place. Now, you may think, well, that's 1492. Well, in 1983, there was a, a Canadian airliner that flew from Ottawa to Ontario, or to Edmonton. It's 4,766 kilometers, or 2,961.45 miles. You can do the math if you want. Halfway through there, in a little place called Gimli in Manitoba, the plane had to actually make an emergency landing because it ran out of fuel. Do you know why? Because they had two different systems of measurement. They thought they were doing liters when really they were doing gallons. They had half the amount of fuel that they thought they, were, that they really actually had to get from one place to the other. The conversion didn't make sense. They had two different measurements for the same thing. Fortunately, only three people were injured. Nobody died when this plane made this emergency landing. Now, I don't know about you. Would you like to get on a plane with somebody who can't tell the difference between liters and gallons? 
if Columbus were to talk you into going on the next journey, would you say, you know, you really missed the last landing last time? You know, Columbus, we were supposed to be in India having curry right now, but instead we've got coconuts in the Bahamas. I feel like you might have made a wrong turn somewhere. Hey, I know I cuss like a sailor and I look at pornography and I'm not nice to my wife and I do all these other things, but you know, really you ought to act more like me because I believe in God. Hey, I, I know that I, I that I gossip and I talk bad about other women in my small group and and, and I, I, I don't treat my husband with, with any measure of respect because, you know, he owes me because I'm a queen and apprentice and I'm the best thing that ever happened to him. But you know what? You really ought to believe more like me. Do, do you understand those different those different measurements that we have? They're not just for our lives. They're for those that claim the name of Christ and that others are looking out and trying to make those decisions. It's probably why Matthew said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot love both God and money. You can s- exchange money for a lot of different things. The truth of the matter is that we're not called to have a divided heart. And so when we look at the question of who is God and we're trying to figure out who this one true God is, the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the, the great difficulty is that if we actually think that is true, then it would dictate the way we behave. Because what you believe influences how you think, act, and live. What you believe influences the way you think, act, and live. I believe that on Sunday mornings that God is pleased with me, that I'm in church and I'm in fellowship with other believers. And that belief for that 30 to 45 minutes, depending upon how long the preacher rambles on, is going to cover me for the rest of the week. I would love to tell you that that's just a, a little sarcastic jab But if I were to really evaluate your life and my life, I would tell you that that's how a lot of people who sit in an American church particularly live their life. When they walk out of here, the next decision they're going to make is where we're going to go eat or where we're going to have for lunch. Well, I believe we should go and eat over here, but instead you're going to go over here. And you're going to probably forget a lot of the things that I have to say today. And you're going to get back into those ruts. And you may even find yourself at some point, somebody may push the button and test you a little bit about what you actually believe And if you actually try to defend God on this, the problem you're going to have is defending the existence of God is that you actually think that may be true, but I'm not sure you actually believe it. Because if you did, then your activities would actually reflect what you truly believe, right? Well, John, how do you take into account that we may have these habits or we may have these other times and everything else? What I take into account is if you have a bad habit, why don't you find something to replace that with that's godly and holy? I get that. I understand that. Because at the end of the day, when it really comes down, we have to go back to that key ideal. We have to go back to what Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And I can only tell you how good God is. I can only show you what he's done for you. I can tell you about his promises for the future. But you have to decide if you're going to believe that or not and allow that to change the way you live your life. I know what I can do. I know how I can live my life. This is not totally an individualistic ideal. But it really does come down to when one person in the group believes that God is the one true God and somebody else believes the same thing and somebody else believes the same thing and somebody else believes the same thing, you'll begin to see these people act, think, believe, and become exactly who God wants them to be. But when you have a whole lot of different belief systems that are out there, you're going to always have this struggle and this fight and this, you even have it within 
Christianity where one denomination believes this and another denomination believes that. I got news for you. Denomination begins the right way with demon, okay? I don't care what denomination you are. If you're not serving the one true God, the God of the Bible, you're not adhering to what the Bible has to say to us. All those extra things that make you special, that make you different, that make you stand out above all the rest of the denominations, they're, they're creating more division than what they're actually bringing together. Now, at one time, there was a little bit more clarification in the denominations. I just don't know if there is anymore. I think it's become more political than it has come truthful. I'm a proud Catholic. I'm a proud evangelical. I'm a proud Presbyterian, but not the one who supports homosexuality. What you believe influences how you think, you act, and you live. And the primary belief we have is the belief in the one true God. Because if you can't get that part right, all the rest of the Bible is up for interpretation. It's up for conversation. It's up for negotiation. And for too many years, mankind has been negotiating with what they can and cannot get away with what God is because they're not totally sure who the one true God is. And you know what I think partially drives that? Is if I think that the one true God is this loving, caring, kind God that just lets me get away with everything and he's so generous and gracious to me, then I've bought into the belief of a false God. Don't excuse God's grace for his acceptance. Don't excuse God's mercy for his allowance. In fact, the real problem we have is that if we look at God who only lets me get away with these things or doesn't hold me to the fire or lets other people get away with all these other things in life and we think that that's how God really behaves, he doesn't really care about me, it's not the one true God. That is a portion of his character that says, I'll deal with things in my own way, but what I want to deal with you is your heart. And let's, let's just think for a second, how much discipline would we receive from a God we do not know? And we would argue and we would fight and we would pick and we would push back. And so for me, our general statement, as we said earlier this morning, our key idea that I want to just really focus on for the rest of this week, I believe that the God of the Bible is the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I cannot have room for any other beliefs regarding who God is, where he came from, or anything else. Until I get that part right, I don't know who offers me forgiveness. I don't know who gives me grace. I don't know who is preparing a place for me. All I know is what I want to happen, what I hope will happen, what I think I ought to get if I don't know the one true God. And so my question this morning is simply this. Do you know the one true God, or are you busy serving the small little G-gods? I encourage you to read chapter 1 this week. There's a whole lot of other information that I didn't even want to get into this morning because we just didn't have the three hours that I thought it would take, unless you want me to keep going. Glad you just said, no, Pastor, we believe you should do that. And then you all walk out the door, right? See, there you go. There you go. I believe the one true God is the God of the Bible, holy unto himself, existent beyond mankind, is not defined by any of, of us, but is defined by himself. He never defended himself. He doesn't ask us to do that either, but he does want all of our attention and our affections. And so as we continue this study through what we believe, let's start there. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. 